This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Pedro Monaville about his new book, Students of the World, Global 1968 and Decolonization in the Congo, which was published by Duke Press in 2022. Dr. Monaville is currently an associate professor at McGill University and was previously an assistant professor at NYU Abu Dhabi. Dr. Monaville, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Could you start by explaining how you came to become interested in studying the history of student activism in post-colonial Congo, um, particularly during the 1960s, the first decade of independence? Sure, sure. So, well, there's there's a long genealogy to this project, but uh, there is a combination, I think, of, of things that um, led me towards uh, this question. Um, maybe the first the first element was that I, I knew personally several people who had been uh, a part of the of the movement, uh, friends and relatives, and uh, I was really aware of like how important that uh, episode in their life had been for them. And um, at another uh, level as well, I uh, I I'd, um, I'd read a lot of works about uh, student protests, uh, youth uprisings uh, globally in the 1960s, and I was struck at the time, and it was actually uh, some time ago because the project took kind of a, a long time to get completed. But I I was struck then that uh, uh, there was in this scholarship nearly no mention of African students. Uh, of the role of African students in the 1960s, uh, even though Africa was mentioned as uh, or decolonization in Africa was mentioned as a, a source, of, source of inspiration for the the, the radicalization of um, youth activists uh, around the world, but uh, African students themselves were not kind of uh, talked about in that work. 
and 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 maybe there was also another reason, another factor that led me to the project, which is more about uh, Congolese historiography. Uh, but one of the sticks for me in this project was to uh, try to broaden the cast of characters in the history of the uh, Congo's decolonization and the history of uh, early post-colonial Congo. So I wanted to go beyond, uh, ju- you know, just the prominent figures like uh, Patrice Lumumba, Joseph Kasafubu, um, uh, uh, Joseph Mobutu, uh, Moïse Chambé, and and the students were um, particularly interesting in this regard. Uh, because they they existed in tension uh, with political power, um, they, they they were not they were not part of it, but they they critically shaped uh, the political evolution of, of the country um, in 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 the nineteen sixties at a really critical juncture for the for, for Congo's history. Uh, you draw on quite a range of source material in the book. Um, so could you share your research methods and whether different sources required different methods? Um, also, feel free to share kind of any instances of failure or abandoned paths uh, in the research process. Yeah. Um, so um, I think the you know the, maybe the, my most important obsession at the beginning of this uh, research project was to uh, find written traces uh, about the history of student activism, and I was uh, it was an obsession because. Most people were, uh, you know, kind of colleagues, and uh, a lot of people were thinking and still think that it's there was uh, there was no archives in Congo that you could use to write the history of the post-colonial period, and I I kind of wanted to prove people wrong, uh, so um, I I I, I um, you know people you know people said that. Uh, you know, all kind of relevant documents had been uh, destroyed or, uh, or, or uh, looted or, uh, or lost, and um, and that's actually true at some level. And the, for instance, the the, the national archives in Kinshasa, to, uh, very poor collections for the, the kind of project I wanted to uh, work on. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in Kinshasa and elsewhere in the Congo to uh, try to locate personal papers. And other documents that former activists had kept, like pamphlets, letters, photographs, memoirs, etc. Um, so that was kind of the first, the first uh, um, most important element of my methodology, um, and I was able to constitute a rather large body of archival sources. Uh, even if uh, many attempts to locate uh, documents failed, uh, and uh, I, I often heard stories uh, about you know how documents had indeed been destroyed and, and, and lost, um, but so at the same time that you know, this kind of failure was not was not a failure because it was also uh, this attempt at uh, you know um, locating accessing. Uh, archival traces was also part of a way for me to reconstruct uh, various networks of of activists, uh, and so it put me in touch with a great number of people um, who had been connected in one way or the other to the history of uh, the student movement of the sixties, and it shaped my my uh, relations with them, uh, and many of them became interviewees, and so. Uh, Oral history is kind of another really important uh, aspect of that project. And so it it shaped my relation with them in the sense that um, 
we had this I developed a kind of a relationship of of exchange of exchange of information and documents especially as as also I was also doing research in archives in uh, countries in Europe, in North America, elsewhere, to try finding the, the traces of uh, the history of Congolese students, uh, the Congolese student diaspora and, uh, and Congolese student activists abroad. And I was also interviewing uh, people who had left the Congo uh, and who lived abroad. And so I, I, was, um, I was participating in a circulation of information and, and documents. And uh, there was a form of uh, exchange that went both ways with my interlocutors. I think that was quite important in the type of the, the conversations, the dialogues that I was able to, to create around uh, the project. But, but I would say that what, what was really um, defining in, 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 uh, in my research uh, was the, you know, the, the ability to, to uh, create intersections between my work with archives, uh, the interviews I conducted, and the kind of ethnographic uh, research I did about the work of memory in, uh, in post, uh, post-Mobutu uh, Congo. And uh, so these were not siloed uh, research paths, but very much um, uh, connected uh, uh, among 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 them all. And before you started your research, uh, what was your biggest unknown or uncertainty about the project? Well, so at you know at the very um, the very beginning of the project, I I I, I actually I was um, I thought I would uh, write uh, about just two set of events uh, in 1969 around uh, a student protest that was violently repressed by the Mobutu regime that uh, really turned into a massacre in Kinshasa and about uh, the protest that happened two years later around the anniversary uh, of this this massacre and that led to the the reform of the higher education system and also the forced drafting of the student into the military. So I thought I was going to write closely about this set of this sequence, um, which actually... uh, ended up to, in my book being just one chapter and the last chapter of the book. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I, was, I really imagined that the question of political violence was going to be the center of the project. And so I was, I was uh, and, you know, with um, an, an attempt on my end to kind of situate that sequence of political violence in, you know, within a longer genealogy of, of, uh, of political violence in the Congo. And I, I was not sure how significant that moment will remain you know, in public memory, given uh, all the other instances of uh, political violence in the Congo, especially in the past 30 years. So, um, um, uh, but I was actually you know, surprised and it turn, turn, turned out that it was extremely still vivid and important uh, and foundational uh, for uh, the people of the generation. All right, let's dive uh, into the book, which though fairly tight in terms of chronology is quite rich and wide ranging. The first part of the book delves into Congolese postal routines. The first chapter hones in on how, much like the internet has allowed people to transcend all sorts of isolation, During the late colonial period in Congo, it was the rather slow technology of the postal service that facilitates students and educated adults 
to make contacts with people all over the world, to solicit and receive books and other materials, and just generally to go beyond the limited world imposed by the Belgium colonial state. And not surprisingly, this ends up attracting Belgium suspicion and surveillance. One of the arguments you make in this chapter is that previous literature on postal cultures, uh, and now I'm quoting you, ignores the convergence between the rhetoric of postal universalism and imperial internationalism. Uh, so can you flesh out a bit uh, for listeners kind of what you're getting at here and why it's significant? Yeah, uh, thanks for the questions. All right, so, so I think it requires a little bit of unpacking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying not to be too uh, long in the answer, but so the that chapter, uh, the first chapter, so yes, it's part of the, the section of the book that uh, is trying to uh, present the significance of postal correspondences and the postal network as uh, sources uh uh, uh, in the political imagination of Congolese in the 20th century, Congolese students, but also uh, generations of literate, educated Congolese before uh, the students of the 1960s. But the, the chapter, for me, also has another function in the book, which is to create a historical context for the type of political transactions that students conducted in the 1960s. So it's kind of like also, it's also offering a, 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 my sort of take on the history of colonial Congo and how this is sort of like shaping uh, the, um, uh, the events in the 1960s. Because my my argument in the book is the that the the, the 60s is part uh, of the the struggles in the, the 1960s are part of uh, a longer struggle for emancipation uh, that specifically responded to the modalities of um, uh, the, the the subjugation of the Congo uh, in the global order. Uh, and it was important to understand that, to understand this specific subjugation, to uh, to go back to the Congo Free State, even if I just don't you know, that don't dwell too much on it. But it's part of that chapter uh, to the Congo Free State, which uh, Leopold II of Belgium established uh, at the Berlin Conference, or uh, in uh, in the context of the Berlin Conference in 1884 and and um, so the chapter starts by um, looking at um, the relationship or like the use of the postal service by the, the Congo Free State, which was kind of, you know, uh, associated with an idea of the colonial sublime. So, you know, that the, the, the post as a technology uh, that was supposed to kind of show the superiority uh, of uh uh, you know, uh, of Leopold and the uh, CFS uh, uh, apparatus uh, for, as a form of uh, legitimation, legitimation of their uh, domination of uh, the, the Congolese uh, population. But what's also interesting in the context of, of the Congo Free State is that very quickly, uh, you know, as uh, awareness about the genocidal atrocities that uh, went with the exploitation of rubber, the forced cultivation of rubber, the forced collection of rubber. Um, uh, there was uh, this really important campaign that developed, centered in in in, in England, and uh, as you know, different individuals, most of them uh, uh, British missionaries, also used correspondence, the postal service, as sort of the main vehicle to. Uh, 
um, you know, to, to sort of to develop this uh, campaign against um, against the Congo Free State, and also quite quickly uh, the post offered um, tools to Congolese. Um, uh, to uh, advance their own agendas, uh, and sometimes in direct opposition uh, to the colonial state, sometimes n- uh, not so much, but but to kind of create their own own space for them to connect with uh, 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 various uh, people's IDs, uh, etc. So one one of my points in the in this chapter is that. Um, the the postal infrastructure uh, and, and enabled and shaped politics in uh, modern Congo. So as I was trying to uh, think about that point, I, I indeed read quite a lot of work, mostly by literary scholars on postal culture and postal histories, and many of these works were about the, uh, Europe and 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 North uh, North America, and it's true that one of the uh, a frequent argument in that literature is that, uh, well, it, a frequent approach to the post in that literature is to approach it through the lens of the nation, uh, maybe a little bit in the kind of Benedict Anderson uh, uh, vein, uh, you know, kind of presenting the the post as an institution that empowered. Uh, the imagined communi- community of 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 the na- the nation, uh, but there, there, there's actually was not so much written about the connections of uh, the post to imperialism, to colonialism, also to internationalism. Um, but um, I I thought there were really interesting parallels between, um, uh, for instance, the establishment of the Universal Postal Union. Uh, which was created in 1874 in Switzerland and was one of the first major uh, international organization. Uh, uh, and and uh, if you look at, if you read the text of the, you know, the foundation of the Universal Postal Union, and then if you read the text of the, you know, the Berlin Act of the Berlin Conference in 1885, 10 years later, there are really strong similarities. Um, and um, the, because the, also, the, the the Congo, the CFS, uh, under Leopold, was not technically a Belgian colony. Uh, it was very much imagined as an international colony. Uh, so Leopold made uh, solemn promises that it would keep open, uh, it would keep the Congo open and accessible to missionaries and merchants from around the so-called civilized world. And, and that rhetoric very much kind of resonated, overlapped with the, the kind of internationalist uh, imagined community that the Universal Postal Union meant to serve. So there was this kind of like interesting uh, 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 parallels, uh, echoes. Um, but the, the, um, that, that point or these, these parallels, these connections, this sort of like uh, specific framing was important to make... Uh, uh, in the context of this book, because the uh, the Congo, um, yeah, I think the yeah, the, because of the specificity of the Congo, it it it, it didn't really uh, uh, well, it emerged as an, an entity that um, always escaped the framework of uh, simple colonial uh, relations. Uh, it was established in relation to a, a broader, white internationalist order. Uh, and uh, in this t- in this sense, the Congolese uh, uh, early on faced a configuration that 
um, force them to think about the broader world be- beyond the, the colonial relationships and their, their postal exchanges took place in this context. So there is kind of like a, if you want, sort of like a, yes, a longer genealogy for the the global mindset of students in the 1960s. I think that's, uh, uh, that is that is shaped by this sort of specific, distinct uh, colonial history. Um, we also uh, meet in this chapter Patrice Lumumba, who would go on to become Congo's first prime minister before his assassination. How does he fit into Congo's postal history? And what does this say about the significance of the post in colonial Congo? Yeah, so the, <laughs> the chapter in, indeed kind of like, uh, it, it has uh, quite a lot of different things in it. And so yeah, it, go, it goes from the Congo Free State to uh, Lumumba. Um, and so Lumumba, you know, as there are a lot of people who've seen uh, Raoul Peck, the Asian filmmaker's biopic on Lumumba. And uh, maybe because of that, like Lumumba is often remembered as, you know, a beer salesman, uh, which he was in uh, Leopoldville, you know, today Kinshasa. He worked for two years before becoming a political anti-colonial uh, activist. He was a beer salesman. And, and people have kind of associated that that work, that line of work with uh, uh, the, the the type of political personality and uh, charismatic uh, 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 figure that he became after that, but uh, but before that, before these two years as a beer salesman, uh, he worked in the postal service for more than ten, nearly ten years. Uh, most of these years in Stanleyville uh, at the time, so today Kisangani, and that was really really uh, um, uh, important uh, in his trajectory. Uh, as uh, um, a so-called évolué uh, in colonial Congo, um, it was also really important in his uh, in his political thinking, and I think one of the only persons who had made that point was Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who wrote a, a, a really long text uh, about Lumumba in 1963. Uh, that was kind of used as the preface to a, a collection of, of speeches by Lumumba that was published by uh, um, Présence Africaine um, that year. And so, um, but be, besides Sartre, actually, very few people that paid attention to uh, the significance of Lumumba's career as a postman in, uh, you know, kind of, uh, well, in making Lumumba what it became. Um, so uh, in the chapter, I look at the various things, you know, I look at uh, the association that Lumumba created for postmen uh, in Stanleyville in the so-called Oriental province. Uh, and I look quite a lot at uh, the publications uh, of this association. It was called Leco Postal. Uh, and as so, you know, kind of a, to, to think about this sort of like, yeah, er, Early traces of you know Lumumba's political uh, thought through these his writings about the, the post, uh, and so for Lumumba, the postal network was was really key in his imagination of a united Congo, and that's the point that Sartre actually made in his text in 1963. But I think that there was there is something else that's also uh, that comes out of uh, of of that that his writings about the post. Which, uh, which is his vision of the, the, the post and postal correspondences as a tool of education, as a tool of knowledge, as a tool of self-advancement. And it was quite important because it was at a time when virtually no Congolese uh, could access higher education, or very, very few. 
And so Lumumba uh, promoted the, the, you know, the, the practice of distance learning courses, uh, for instance, but uh, he, uh, he promoted other forms of literacy and reading practices connected to the post that uh, uh, were not uh, overtly political, but that, uh, that challenged the kind of mental enclosures that the Belgians uh, maintained in, in the Congo. On that note, uh, the next uh, chapter considers how, in the context of the Congo crisis, postal mail created effective bonds between Congolese students and other youth on an international scale. So how did the Congo crisis, in a sense, encourage and support this growth of global pen pals? Yeah, so... So, as, so during the colonial period, the, the post already emerged as sort of like a unique venue uh, for uh, young Congolese, literate Congolese, to try to well bypass the limitations to uh, education, to mobility. Uh, international mobility was extremely limited. So students in the 1960s lived in different circumstances, but they still participate or they still view the post as sort of like postal exchanges, postal correspondences as as a sort of like um, really important uh, space that they could invest for uh, their own learning advancement, uh, also politically. Uh, at the same time, it's interesting that the the you know the context of the dec- decolonization in Congo was extremely uh, uh, troubled, and uh, uh, the Congo crisis undermined the efficiency of the postal service, but uh, still. Um, international postal exchanges became even more crucial at the time. Um, and it was crucial for Congolese to connect to people outside of the country, uh, mostly for, for, for because of the fact that uh, independence in the Congo, decolonization meant a, a form of internationalization of postal politics, of, of, sorry, an internationalization of Congolese politics. So there was, you know, uh, in the context of the crisis of decolonization, Belgium obviously continued to play an important role, but it was a rather minor uh, um, um, country, uh, uh, and um, and there were a series of other uh, interveners uh, that became that tried to steer Congolese politics and uh, and and intervene in the Congo crisis. You know, including France, uh, the UK, the US, of course, uh, and on the other side, uh, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, uh, China to some extent in 1960, a bit more after that, but also India, Ghana, Egypt, Guinea, etc. Uh, so um, there was this sort of like a crowded, uh, uh, you know, a scene of. Um, uh, of uh, foreign interveners in the Congo in those years, and it was crucial for for Congolese to to try to orient themselves in this context of of violent internationalization, uh, which uh, postal correspondence uh, allowed them to do, um, and uh, and at the same time, so the the internationalization of Congolese politics, the Congo crisis, it it also created uh, uh, you know a wide interest for the Congo abroad and so it gave uh, it offered possibilities for Congolese to find interlocutors who were willing to engage with them and from whom they could expect uh, various kinds of support 
uh, you know, for students, it was often often in the form of fellowships, but it was also sometimes in the forms of of stipends that they could use to finance political organizations at home. Um, and what really interested me in these exchanges uh, of, of letters uh, was the language that uh, a correspondents uh, used to build connections across borders and, and across context and how they, 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 how they presented themselves to the world. The next couple of chapters <clears throat> hone in on the campus life of Lovanium, the first university in Congo. Could you ground us with an overview of the history of higher education in Congo um, in terms of kind of when it begins, at what scale, uh, and what are the demographics of the students and how do they fit or stand out from the rest of the country? Um, and also if you can kind of give us a sense of how this kind of compares with elsewhere on the continent. Yeah, no, so th- yeah, this is an important question because it's actually quite different. I mean, especially different from... Uh, um, English, uh, you know, British, British and French colonies on the continent may be more similar to the to the, the Portuguese. But uh, you know, one thing that many people know when they know something about the uh, Congo, the Congo's uh, decolonization, often they know that there were very few uh, university graduates by the time of independence. There are different numbers that circulate. There were very few. Um, less than 40, uh, and there were not one single medical doctor or one single lawyer among them. Uh, so, um, and which is kind of was a quite different picture in, in um, you know, in, in other parts of the continent. So Lovanium, as you mentioned, the first university opened its doors in 1954. The second university was the University of Elizabethville, so it's Lumumbashi today, and it opened its doors the year after, in 1955. The first student was allowed to, uh, Congolese student was allowed to study in a foreign university in Belgium, was Thomas Kanza in 1952. Uh, so it's kind of very late uh, a starting point for higher education. Uh, but in the chapter, I start way before that, because uh, what interested me in that chapter was not really actual university students, of course they interested me, but like the idea of uh, of university students. And so that idea, uh, it was there and it haunted both Belgian and Congolese imaginations, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years before the actual creation of a higher education system. So I start in the uh, interwar years uh, to, to sort of like, you know, track, you know, how this... Uh, uh, ID uh, evolved, resonated with Belgians, with Congolese, created uh, anxieties, but also uh, expectations, uh, etc. In terms of the demographics, um, so uh, most students at the beginning, so in the 1950s, uh, especially at Lovania, most students came from Catholic seminaries, and was the case because the, the uh, for, until quite late, seminaries were the only possibilities for Congolese to continue their education past primary school. So uh, a lot of them had studied in rural, like kind of isolated, secluded uh, uh, Catholic seminaries. Um, That changed a little bit in the years after that. There were more and more students who came from urban settings uh, and they also can, that, that can also change the uh, atmosphere on, on, on campuses. Um, for many years, the student body was exclusively male, at least the Congolese student body, because there were foreign students and there were some foreign female students, but there were no uh, 
Congolese female students until at least the mid-1960s because they didn't have access to uh, a secondary uh, education um, that only changed also late in the, very late in the 1950s. Uh, the numbers were not extensive, so there were very few student grad, uh, university graduates in 1960, but at the time there were maybe around 400, between 400 and 500 students in the two universities in Congo and and also including the Congolese students who studied abroad, uh, so around 500. And if you, the same figure um, 10 years later was between 10 and 15,000, more or less. So it's kind of, it, it grew exponentially, but it remains still uh, rather uh, small. And, you know, the background of the students were um, mixed. There were some, but there were quite a lot of students who came from very modest backgrounds and uh, they arrived to uh uh, the university because they had been handpicked by often by missionaries, you know, because of their abilities, intellectual abilities, and kind of selected, separated from the rest, and and kind of they were given the chance to continue the, their education uh, until uh, until uh, university. Um, what what is really very significant uh, and very important is that students came from. Uh, around the country. I mean, there were some parts of the country that were overrepresented and that created some frictions uh, in the 1960s, but much more uh, later on. Um, they were coming from all around the country. They were also, as I mentioned, foreign students. There were students from Nigeria. There were students from Cameroon. There were students from Mozambique, Angola, South Africa, uh, from uh, uh, from uh, other uh, countries in Africa as well. There are some European students uh, uh, as well uh, on uh, these two uh, uh, Congolese universities. So there, there was a unique kind of cosmopolitan uh, atmosphere on the campuses where, I mean, it was one of the, these were one of the only, um, uh, one of the very few places where, you know, people from around the country could actually interact and kind of create a community, and so there, the the so that was that was significant because that set the students apart from uh, the context of ethnic tensions that was really important in uh, uh, in Congolese politics in the especially in the first part of the nineteen sixties. So uh, the the kind of the students existed at this sort of like very distinct sort of like you know national. Uh, uh, community and also international at the same time. One tension from the colonial period um, that you highlight is that while missionaries and colonial officials, you know, thought schooling would keep colonized Africans in order, the colonial state failed to determine Congolese experiences of education, um, and that, in fact, and you know, here I'm quoting you. It was by working through the contradictions of the education system that Congolese students developed a strong sense of themselves as a national vanguard that could transform the Congo and the world. Can you kind of give an example of this to listeners? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, there was a lot of ambivalence uh, in the development of higher education in colonial Congo. So at first, the Belgians were afraid that... uh, 
university students could turn against that, but for different reasons, there was a change, uh, you know, of mind on the part of the colonial state. Uh, and in the end of the 1960s, they, um, the state accepted to open, or, you know, accepted that the church first opened a university, then they opened their own university. Uh, and the hope at the time was that uh, they could create in these universities an elite, an educated elite that would um, act as a force of moderation politically. So they were hoping that these students, who's this university trained uh, elite, would work with them and in hand uh, to manage the country and to kind of counterbalance the influence of the emerging class of anti-colonial uh, um, uh, uh, activists that was kind of emerging at the same time. So the that discourse of elitism, it actually resonated with the students. And you know, if they were able to uh, uh, um, study at the university, it was uh, because they had managed to survive a system that was uh, uh, brutally selective uh, with extremely high attrition rates. And so they could actually sort of like, you know, connect with the rhetoric of elitism that was sort of like, you know, uh, provided to them by the colonial state, by the missionary church, um, etc. But But at the same time, um, they also faced very concretely the limitations of the educational system. They faced racism on an everyday basis uh, on, on campuses, on the part of uh, white uh, faculty, but also uh, administrators, uh, they realized that uh, higher education had been designed to favor kind of uh, semi-emancipation and that uh, um, much bigger ambitions uh, uh, and, uh, you know, um, they had much kind of a, a much more ambitious view about their role in society. So there is, you know, there is not a clear moment uh, when the shift happened, but there was a continuous um, uh, atmosphere of conflict on campuses that led students to reappropriate the language of colonial elitism, uh, but but also to reroute its logic. So uh, what I follow in the book is uh, the students collective transformation from, from this elite, from this colonial elite, into, indeed, a kind of nationalist, left nationalist vanguard and force of radical transformation uh, that, that kind of ensued from these tensions, these disconnects, these kind of failed promises and uh, uh, this kind of limited vision of uh, emancipation that was at the core of the, the project of uh, higher education. Okay, the next three chapters looks at the Congo crisis um, with a focus on how educated youth experienced it. Uh, for listeners who are maybe not familiar with Congo's history, uh, can you briefly explain the crisis, which I know is a, not an easy task to do? Yeah, so, um, well, maybe one reason why it's difficult to uh, explain it is that there are uh, Competing chronologies uh, that circulate about you know, uh, what was you know, when was the crisis. <laughs> so I think that kind of uh, um, comes up with different uh, answers about what it was. But you know, at the kind of a factual level, it very much started. Well, it had roots obviously in the in on the context of the struggle for independence, but it very much started 
on the you know in the the, the, the aftermath the direct aftermath of independence so independence was uh, on June 30 1960 and uh, less than a week later uh, there was a mutiny of the of the military uh, it was called the force public um, and uh, part of the reason for the mutiny was uh, that it was the, uh, the force public was still led by a very problematic retrograde Belgian uh, officer, Emilian Sens, who had very different visions about the Congolese military than Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, and uh, and Sens didn't want to consider any kind of uh, changes to the status of, of Congolese soldiers in the military, and they, uh, as a result, they they they, uh, they, they mutinied, and um, the mutiny kind of was started. Uh, in the Lara Congo, it spread out to uh, Leopoldville and then around the, the, the country. And uh, it kind of created a movement of panic among the white population. There were like 100,000 people still there in the uh, country a week after independence. And it was this a movement of exodus. Um, and what also happened was that uh, the Belgian government decided to intervene militarily. So it, it, it sent its own uh, military, uh, military uh, its own army, without uh, against the will of uh, Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, against the will of President uh, Joseph Kasavubu. So, like ten days after the independence, the former colony and the former metropole were basically in a state of war, uh, and you know things get out of control. Uh, in great part because uh, on uh, July 11, so it's uh, also not even two, two weeks after independence, Moïse Chambé, who was the leader of, of Katanga, which was the richest province, the, uh, uh, Moïse Chambé declared the secession and later independence of Katanga with the support of the Belgian mining conglomerate Union Minière. Um, and so Lumumba and Kasafubu were trying to uh, well, to preserve and restore the uh, national unity, the unity of the country, and they uh, they tried to get uh, support from wherever they could find it. Uh, the U.S. was not interested, uh, so they asked Khrushchev and the Soviet Union. Actually, they began to send uh, um, uh, various um, material support to uh, to the Congo, which made the crisis a Cold War crisis. Uh, the a kind of compromise that was found was to appeal to the United Nations. The UN deployed an extremely uh, important civilian and military operation, which its largest one uh, since its creation. Um, and um, but this actually was not immediately successful. Uh, and um, tensions continue to uh, grow um, in the. No, um, in the weeks uh, after that, and in September 1960, the um, president Kasafubu decided to uh, dismiss Lumumba from office uh, as prime minister, and it was mostly because he had been pressured to do so by uh, Belgium, the US, France, other uh, Western um, allies and supporters. Uh, Lumumba, of course, was assassinated. Uh, well, it was you know first uh, uh, um, he was first arrested. Uh, uh, he was transferred to Katanga uh, in January nineteen sixty one. He was assassinated on January 17, nineteen sixty one, in Katanga in the presence of Chombe, the leader of the Katanga Secession, and of his Belgian 
uh, advisors. Um, and um, that's sort of like, you know, kind of a very short chronology of the crisis. Most, you know, people um, view the end of the Congo crisis in 1963, when finally the UN was able to end the uh, uh, Katang the Katangi secession, uh, but uh, um, not even a year after that, uh, uh, there were uh, a series of very uh, large scale peasant uprisings uh, that um, uh, erupted in different parts of the country, which can also be seen as you know as part of the sequence of the Congo crisis, um, and and I would say that the you know. The end of the Congo crisis comes gradually after Mobutu take power uh, on November 24, 1965, in a coup, uh, and is going to be able somehow uh, to, uh, to 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 kind of end these tensions and and transform the transform the the, the 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 political configuration of the Congo. But I would say that the Congo crisis is this sort of like, yes, yeah, this kind of long sequence of five or six years starting immediately after uh, independence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I found it quite striking in this section just how much Congolese politicians relied on students um, in this period. Uh, for example, having students represent them at the second roundtable conference with Belgium to negotiate the terms of Congo's independence. So how and why did students come to occupy such a central role in Congo's politics at this time? You know, it's a great question. But um, so at the same time, like for the for Congolese politicians in 1960, the second roundtable conference was really purely uh, technical and they were actually proven wrong. They were actually, was actually a very important conference and Belgium was able to use that conference to set up the terms of independence in a way that very much uh, prevented real forms of uh, economic decolonization. It's actually, it's actually Mobutu is going to try to come back to the terms that had been decided in this um, conference uh, several years after that in the second part of the 1960s also uh, uh, with uh, the support of advisors who are coming from the student movement but but so the, the but but it's true yes students occupy the uh, a quite important role and I think to me the the most probably uh, emblematic uh, um, you know kind of expression of that was uh, in September 1960 so you know as, as I mentioned in the sequence of the Congo crisis that's the moment when um, Kasafubu, the president, dismissed Lumumba 
from his position as prime minister. And at that moment, Mobutu intervenes. Uh, he's the head of the military uh, of the Congolese army, the former force public. Uh, he intervenes, but he decides not to take power himself, as he's going to do five years later. Um, and instead, what he does is uh, he asks a group of students to create a new government. So the Lumumba government is replaced by a government made up of students and recent graduates. So it kind of shows the, the importance of, of students uh, politically uh, at the time. And it was the so-called, so that government was called the, the Collège des Commissaires Généraux, the kind of general commissioners uh, college. Um, so the, you know, why students were, I think the main reason why students uh, occupy this important role in, uh, in Congolese politics at the time is that they basically occupy the highest echelon in, you know, kind of the of the educational system, of course, but it is also in, you know, in the system of uh, um, of va- of colonial value, if you want, um, and um, they were, you know, in a way. Kind of looking down on politicians, they, they you know kind of uh, socially, intellectually, they consider themselves as sort of like uh, as um, more uh, you know quote unquote evolved, superior to them, uh, and they also looked at their credentials, um, at their educational credentials, which were superior to the one of the politicians, like. N- Nearly no one in the Congolese government in 1960 uh, had studied at the university level. Uh, maybe two ministers out of you know more than 30 uh, at university degree. So um, so students consider themselves as you know having better credentials, uh, and they, they thought that these credentials were forms of legitimacy. Uh, that it meant that it should be them, not the politicians, who should decide. Uh, the, what should be the evolution of the of the country? We should manage the country actually, uh, and uh, and I think the, the 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 they were they were able to use a certain you know uh, uh, logic that uh, was difficult to fully ignore on the part of the politicians. Um, uh, so uh, because of these uh, uh, sort of like you know later development, later opening to higher education, but also the prestige of of university education. Not surprisingly, uh, given that Congo was enmeshed in Cold War politics, as you've kind of already referenced, uh, so too were the students. So how, how did the Cold War impact early student activism? Yeah, um, so, you know, so th- there is there is this, uh, I think, something that I should mention is the, um, so this rapid shift in student politics. So, you know, as I'm, they just talked about uh, the kind of the first important incarnation of student politics was this uh, government, the Collège des Commissaires Généraux, which uh, actually was um, directly involved in the in the events that led to the assassination of Lumumba. And so some of the people in that uh, government uh, carried a direct responsibility in the assassination. So that's the first time when students kind of become uh, visibly, politically, you know, uh, significant, meaningful in Congo, and it's uh, in the context of a very neo-colonial project, or kind of. Uh, so that's that's that that was um, sort of this the starting point. But the what's what's um, what's interesting is that the, so the, the assassination of Lumumba then kind of radically shifted 
perspectives in student circles. So it created this kind of shock effect. And very quickly, uh, the majority of the students are going to reject uh, and denounce the action of this college, the Commissaire Généraux, and, and, and instead you know, create new student organizations uh, uh, that are going to sit, place themselves at the left of the political spectrum and it's kind of like uh, you know, as, as a, an important force of the uh, nationalist left uh, in Congo. So you have this shift. Um, and the, so the the Cold War uh, in this context, so um, there is also an evolution. So uh, initially, they were uh, when the when the Congolese students are structuring themselves, when the Congolese student movement is structuring itself uh, in the aftermath of uh, Lumumba's assassination. So it's in on this basis of you know left nationalism but there are a lot of connections with uh the US uh and there are a lot of connections with the National Student Association in the US which was you know secretly funded by the the, the CIA as was was revealed a few years uh, after that and so there were you know this group of cold war uh, liberals in the US were uh, you know young people uh part of the the, the National Student Association that were really trying to uh, you know, influence uh, the development of the Congolese student movement. And for them, what was at stake was to prevent the Congolese student movement to take the side of the Eastern Bloc uh, in the context of the Cold War. Um, and, you know, the kind of student Cold War, the rivalries between the different kind of feder- international federation of students. Um and they they, they 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 were kind of hoping that the the Congolese students would remain a uh, uh, neutral. Um, that kind of worked for some time, but they I think the logic of um, you know or the, the the broader development of international uh, 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 politics, uh, also the logic of well political radicalization within the student movement in 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 the Congo and among the Congolese student diaspora meant that. Uh, Ultimately, by the mid-1960s, there was kind of a break with this sort of like Cold War liberal uh, orientation or neutrality vis-a-vis this Cold War liberal uh, orientation. And and the student movement suddenly kind of uh, uh, very openly embraced Marxism, which no, was not the case of, of all students, of course, but like of a great number of students. And there was this sort of really clear reorientation towards it like a clearly left and uh and i guess uh anti uh anti-us uh position and kind of i guess uh touching on that you know two themes that come up throughout your book are the international mobility of students and the global circulation of print culture and letters so kind of in addition to what you've just been kind of talking about how do these different mobilities contribute to the radicalization of a subset of Congolese students to form, as you put it, a student front? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. Um, so, uh, independence had, had led to a, a rapid expansion of higher education in the Congo. But it's also created a new situation that uh, offered many opportunities uh, to young Congolese to to study abroad. You know, I, I mentioned already a little bit the you know the kind of the student diaspora was mostly in in Europe, both Eastern and Western Europe, and in in the US. 
Um, and students uh, abroad were often part of um, uh, you know various kind of organizations, but that that often brought them uh, in contact with students from you know other African countries, you know elsewhere, you know from, from students from. Uh, from across the global south and, and and beyond, so like we you know one important association, for instance, in France was the Fédération des étudiants d'Afrique noire, the, the uh, Black African Students Federation in France, um, and so the, there there was a form of political sociability for Congolese students abroad that uh, was important in kind of opening up their um, uh, perspectives, uh, shaping political trajectories, the connections to various kind of um, ideas and, and political effects. Um, and uh, and they, 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 they looked very much at the situation of the, of the Congo through the lens of its international ramifications. And actually, it was also the case for many students in the, who remained in the Congo as well. Um, but students abroad were particularly sensitive to the the the, the, the global uh, uh, dimensions. Um, that was um, <clears throat> a, a moment that I, I kind of um, you know I developed in the book is the the Mulele and Simba risings of the mid nineteen sixties. So uh, this. Uh, Maoist-inspired uh, peasant rebellions uh, that were started by uh, Lumumba's politicians, uh, including Mulele, who had been the minister of education in uh, Lumumba's government, who had been trained in China. Uh, and so, you know, between 1963 and 1965, I mean, even after 1965, but uh, they, they, they actually managed to control a large part of the national territory. They were fighting for what they called the second uh, independence. Uh, and, and they, you know, they attracted, uh, uh, they secured support from uh, various uh, allies, you know, including Cuba, of course, so you have you know, Che Guevara, uh, uh, who traveled to Congo with uh, a contingent of uh, black Cuban volunteers um, uh, to fight with the Congolese rebels. Uh, you have uh, some support from China, Egypt, Algeria, uh, uh, as well in the context of the uh, uh, of the uprisings. Uh, and then on the other end, you have the uh, you know intervention of of Belgium and the US. Uh, uh, we also like you know hired uh, white mercenaries uh, f- to wage a very violent uh, counterinsurgency uh, campaigns. So there was once again this kind of intense internationalization of the Congolese politics three four years after uh, independence, uh, which uh, which 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 students abroad were kind of. Um, very kind of sensitive to and uh, when they join the side of the rebellion they often try to act as the ambassadors of the uh, 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 uprising they presented themselves as the spokesperson of the revolution you know they felt a duty to mobilize or other uh, young uh, congolese uh, they felt a duty to kind of you know sustain the, the sort of like international solidarity for the for the for the movement. Um, so in that context as well, uh, both print culture and postal correspondences were essential uh, because these students abroad were spread out across uh, um, you know multiple countries. And it was 
often on paper, I mean, literally on paper, uh, that their mobilization really developed and became visible. So like in the pamphlets, newspapers that they circulated. Um, and so they came to the uh, idea that their contribution to the you know, revolutionary armed uh, rebellion that had uh, emerged in the Congo, that their contribution should be on what they called the information front, uh, which you know they kind of developed by projecting representations of the situation in the crown that were often twisted. They also often exaggerated their own importance, but that was, you know, instrumental in helping sustain the struggle and the support for the struggle internationally at a time when uh, on the ground uh, it was facing extremely difficult, like uh, military uh, challenge on the part of the government and its Belgian and American allies. Your final two chapters and the epilogue turn to the early years of Mobutu's rule. Um, And it's in this moment that the state becomes more and more intolerant of student mobility and international connections. Uh, But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Um, Perhaps surprising to people who mainly know about Mobutu's later years, when Mobutu takes power in 1965, he initially seeks to incorporate and partner with the student left. Uh, But by 1967, this, as you put it, unnatural alliance begins to fray. So can you share more about why it is that Mobutu initially courts the student left and kind of what is at stake for him in this effort? Yeah, so, you know, yeah, I guess there is the, yeah, there's the, Perception, you know, and that's not a, a false perception, but that uh, the coup of of Mobutu, it, you know, it's one of the first military coup in this wave of military coups uh, uh, that are going to, you know, uh, uh, appear uh, across the the continent in the late sixties and seventies, and it, there is often the perception that that military coup belongs to the kind of right wing military coups, you know, uh, um, but the, the, the which well, once again, it's maybe not wrong, but that's not necessarily how people perceived it at the time. Um, and I think, you know, many in many ways, Mobutu ch- tried to profile himself as sort of like a progressive military figure. Um, he used a, a near-revolutionary rhetoric. Um, so, um, you know, he... After the... I mean, the, 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 the raison d'etre for the coup was to... Uh, neutralize the political class, you know, to, to, uh, and Mobutu, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, claimed that they they brought the country to a dead end, you know, they needed to be stopped. So all institutions were, you know, uh, freezed. Uh, political parties were banned, and you know, politicians were supposed to retire. And that's actually not what happened. He actually recycled a lot of the political personnel uh, uh, later on. But but students shared the same distaste for the political class than kind of Mobutu uh, did, and they appreciated his nationalist tone. Um, and uh, so, and I mean, they were not all naive about you know who he was and where he came from, but some believed that that marginalization of the political class was kind of creating an avenue. It was opening an avenue for them. It was. Uh, um, 
uh, or creating an opening uh, that uh, and that they could uh, use Mobutu. They could mani- man- manipulate Mobutu uh, to advance their own own vision. And Mobutu, on his end, I think thought the same thing that he could manipulate the students, uh, and he. So he was drawn to the student left because, well, there was still kind of the idea of the students as an elite that, you know, uh, for the, for, uh, that could realize the promises of development. But uh, he was drawn specifically to the student left because he, uh, he was willing to establish his legitimacy as a defender of Congolese nationalism and, uh, you know, a, a follower of Lumumba himself, which... Of course, it's paradoxical because he uh, had played a role in you know, the assassination of Lumumba. But you know, before that, he had been actually quite close to Lumumba, uh, uh, and uh, you know, was part of Lumumba's political party, uh, and that this kind of uh, you know, close relationship. Um, and um, and also, you know, Mobutu was very attentive to the international context. I mean, in the same way that the students were, and so the really important element of context here is that uh, one of the stakes of the coup in 1965 was to make sure that Moïse Chambé would not come back to power. So what's also what could also be very surprising is that so Chambé had been the leader of the Katanga secession from 1960 to 1963, but not even a year after that, he became the prime minister of of, of of the Congo, of the reunited Congo, which is actually quite surprising because he, he was the one who wanted to kind of, you know, uh, create his own state with Katanga, but for different reasons, he was kind of brought back from a, a short exile, uh, became prime minister, and and and, and uh, Chombe, much more than Mobutu, was seen universally as responsible for the assassination of Lumumba. And he, I mean, he was there, I and mean, it was revealed later, he was there, Um he carried clearly a very important responsibility. And so when when Chombe became the prime minister in 1965, it kind of uh, outraged people around the world and, and, and particularly across Africa and kind of progressive African countries. And so Chombe became a total outcast. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, kind of Mobutu wanted to profile himself, you know, uh, in, in, in contrast with Chombe. And so um, the, 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 the um, you know, and and Chombe, you know, was seen as kind of a puppet of the of the Belgians, and uh, so for for Mobutu, there were I guess two things in that alliance with the student left. Uh, there were stakes that were domestic, this kind of anti-Chombe, but it was also uh, I mean both domestic and international, kind of uh, uh, at 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 the same time. So uh, it thought he could benefit from that. Uh, it thought he could use this this. Uh, alliance with the the, the student, uh, but it was also a very risky bet. The final chapter looks at mid-1968 to mid-1971, a time of intense repression and violence by Mobutu and his government against the student left. You note that just as the colonial state feared students' international connections, So too did Mobutu, and this wasn't entirely paranoia on his part. Um, So how did student internationalism, as you put it, always shed light on the unfinished nature of decolonization? And how does this influence both Mobutu to adopt his own form of decoloniality, 
as well as shape um, sort of his approach uh, to decolonization? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so, you know, it's what kind of just, you know, uh, talking about uh, Momutu thought he could capitalize uh, on students' left cosmopolitanism, uh, but he also feared the, the autonomy of the students. So after 1965, so uh, and even more, well, yeah, 1966, 1967, he began to try to uh, bring all forces in Congolese society under his control, uh, labor union, all kind of, uh, uh, you know, parts of, uh, um, you know, uh, organized uh, uh, Congolese society. Um, and uh, he, he was really um, uh, willing to, Impose his own vision, his own language, and students were not ready to give away their uh, critical mind, their independence. So uh, the frictions very quickly, you know, kind of uh, expanded, developed, and kind of it became sort of this open uh, uh, antagonism between the students and the, the state by the end of 1967. Um, so that that for for, for the, the the students, what was you know what they didn't want to renounce, and that what Mobutu wanted them to renounce was that kind of extroverted, cosmopolitan political imagination, and for many of them, that was the language of Marxism, uh, and it was key very much in sort of their uh, intellectual political autonomy, uh, and in their capacity to resist uh, full incorporation into the Mobutist machine. So it was kind of uh, very much by positioning themselves as sort of the this, um, specific, uh, um, um, this specific political group, this specific group in Congolese society uh, with this sort of like uh, openness to the world that, uh, that, you know, that was kind of, yeah, one of the source of their, uh, of, of their, their, their critique and, and autonomy. So that kind of forced Mobutu um, to specify and develop his vision of decolonization because that was also a kind of like central in the student, um, um, you know, a, a, a political corpus. Uh, they, <clears throat> well, you know, they were not the only ones, of course, but they, you know, they thought that decolonization wasn't finished. Uh, it wasn't finished on university campuses, but at, at the level of the state as well. And they had this kind of, they developed this platform about what should be a kind of, uh, uh, what should be a, you know, a plan for to bring about real independence, real decolonization. And that kind of like forced Mobutu to kind of develop a kind of counter discourse, counter narrative on that. And this became what, you know, is the, the, the rhetoric of, Authenticity, authenticity, which is kind of the signature uh, uh, take uh, on the politics of decolonization that uh, Mobutu developed. Uh, I mean, sometimes actually also, you know, stealing ideas from the students as well. Um, but but that's the deep, what's 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 uh, very clear is that this the development of this rhetoric around authenticity, which had kind of different stages, but it it ran. Absolutely in parallel with the uh, the the attempt at suppressing the student movement and the the violent repression of the student movement, the two were the two were absolutely uh, connected. 
Uh, and it's, so it's you know, one example, and it's really no surprise, but the, the kind of maybe more symbolic uh, uh, piece in the policy of authenticity, it's like in 1971 when the country was renamed Zaire, uh, from Congo to Zaire, and that was kind of decided really at the moment when Mobutu is uh, sort of trying to finalizing the repression of the student movement by sending uh, uh, the students into the military and then also uh, radically reshaping the institutional structure of the higher education uh, system. Unfortunately, it's in this atmosphere of tension and repression that you know, for the first time, a sizable number of women are admitted to uh, Luvanium. So how does the political environment shape how male students reacted to the changing demographics on campus? Yeah, so the you know, Congolese women, yeah, they really became visible on campuses uh, and particularly Luvanium only in 1968. Uh, so yes, right in the middle of at the beginning, towards the beginning of the open tensions between uh, the students and the, the government, um, and so when I interviewed many women were uh, students there at Lavanium, um, and uh, and you know they had different uh, takes on their experience there, uh, but what's quite clear is that among certain male students and among certain male student activists. Uh, there was uh, um, a, you know a, a, a feeling that uh, these um, changes in the gender structure of Lovania constituted a threat. Um, and the main reason I think is that actually Mobutu also used uh, rhetoric of female emancipation. It was part of the signatures also of the policies of or orientations of. Of his regime, so he took uh, publicly took he took credit for the f- relative feminization of Lovanium, uh, in the same way that he was always happy to um, um, talk about the female paratrooper section that he created in the military, uh, and also he was very proud to say that he was the first head of government in Congo since independence to have selected uh, a female minister, and it was uh, Sophie Kanza, and she she was actually the, the sister of Thomas Kanza, who had been the first student to admit it in the Belgian University in 1952, and was a kind of supporter of Lumumba, and Sophie was the first uh, Congolese woman to get a university degree. She studied in Switzerland in the early 60s at the University of Fribourg. Uh, and she was a minister of social affairs in uh, Mobutu's government. So Mobutu was, you know, uh, often kind of, you know, um, um, emphasizing uh, his contribution to female emancipation and uh, the arrival of women at Lavanium was supposed to be part of that. And so for, for, for I think for male students, they they, they kind of, they, they were... Uh, they associated this woman, their arrival to to the campus with uh, the regime that was antagonizing them even you know uh, uh, more and more. Uh, there were also rumors that certain women on campus were uh, at affairs with. Uh, uh, people from Mobutu's entourage, uh, that maybe they were spying on the student uh, organizations, movement, and they were kind of reporting what was happening among the, stu- the, 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 the students. So that, that kind of you know, was part of this, uh, that, that's part, part of the, 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 the atmosphere uh, at that time. And, 
And I think there is also, well, maybe, yeah, another uh, important element is that the arrival of women, uh, of female students at Lovanium and elsewhere was happened at a time of really intense massification of uh, of these uh, campuses. So in less than two years at Lovanium, the, uh, the student numbers doubled, uh, which meant that resources were becoming, you know, uh, um, uh, more difficult to, to access and... Uh, <clears throat> And uh, the kind of comfort, and there was a real kind of comfort uh, initially on these university campuses, on these elite university campuses. That was really important uh, for the students, uh, not just because they, you know, kind of concretely benefited from them in their everyday life, but also that was for them part of their, you know, establishing the status uh, also socially, but politically as well. Uh, so it was, you know, Constitutive of this elitism that um, that turned into a kind of vanguardism, uh, but they saw this kind of erosion of the living conditions that went with the massification uh, um, of campuses as a deliberate attempt uh, on the part of the regime to undermine their uh, political influence, and so the, that that was how some male students also interpreted the arrival of, of female students. As you mentioned a bit earlier, you know, eventually the battles between Mobutu and the students culminate with the students' forced conscription into the military uh, and the state taking over and completely restructuring the universities. Uh, so what are the short and long-term ramifications of this? Yeah, so the so that uh, forced conscription um, is a tool of, of uh, repression that's very reminiscent of of the colonial period. And it's actually quite interesting that uh, Mobutu himself uh, in the 1950s uh, was uh, reportedly forcefully conscripted in the military because he was acting out in the um, missionary school where he was t- studying uh, um, in, in the Equator uh, province. It's also a strategy that was uh, inspired other uh, African uh, uh, regimes. Uh, I think uh, Eadema was uh, one of the uh, people in Togo kind of replicated this uh, this strategy. But at, at at a kind of you know at first level, it, it can seem like a risky way to uh, try to uh, suppress student dissent. I mean, you could imagine that you know maybe students could have try to, uh, uh, um, you know, form in trouble once in the military. But the, I think the, the, well, the main reason practically why this proved to be an effective form of, of, uh, of repression was that once in the military, students were under uh, uh, military discipline and uh, they could be, you know, really swift uh, punishments for any attempts at straying away from from the line uh, so it was this sort of uh, uh, you know regimentation caporalization of the students uh, forms of you know corporal violence and and you know uh, and other forms of uh, 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 discipline that um, that meant that well yeah the, this kind of spirit of protest kind of disappeared so uh but the, the, uh, there, uh, there's also, I think, another dimension that's maybe like kind of more uh, 
positive in a sense uh, uh, or positive um, um, that or creative uh, in the sense that um, the inclusion in the military uh, offered to students uh, an alternative uh, to their elitist and vanguardist identity. So it gave them like an esprit de corps, um, which uh, meant the abandonment of the cosmopolitan political imagination and uh, that it was a form of inclusion uh, within the regime, within the, uh, within the security forces of the regime, within the oppressive forces of the regime. Uh, and it kind, of, it, it kind of created a form of intimacy um, uh, uh, with the regime that's, that's uh, to me, very uh, similar to uh, what Mbembe uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, describes in the, on the, the post-colonia. So this, this kind of one of the, these, these structures of, of political rule in the, the post-colonia. So that, that kind of, um, it, it concretely ended uh, um, student protest after years of, of student protest. Uh, for 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 many years, and it's not on. It's not before the mid or late nineteen eighties that uh, the student movement was able to rebuild itself to uh, you know the level it had in the the nineteen sixties. Now that we've gotten uh, through the book, what would you say is the book's key intervention or contribution to the literature on decolonization in Africa or decolonization more broadly? Well, um, so with regard to this specific question, um, I think you know one thing that the book shows uh, clearly is that decolonization was not a sequence that ended uh, with the access to formal independence. And I think well, it's not it's not the only book that's showing that, but it, it is showing that, uh, and it's showing that you know instead of ending with uh, formal access to independence, uh, decolonization took on a new life. After that, uh, as a field of debate, as a field uh, of uh, experimentations, and these debates uh, were not confined within the borders of the new nation states, but they very much played out uh, in relation to global political dynamics, uh, and very much in relation to uh, uh, conflicting visions about world making, which you know, to use the uh, Adam Getachew's uh, uh, term here, um, and what the Congolese example um, suggests as well, uh, maybe is the that um, the global framing of decolonization and the discussion about and the debates about decolonization in the 1960s, that global framing directly responded to uh, the, the, the totalitarian ambitions of uh, European colonialism, uh, which you know, appear very clearly in, in the Belgian case, but I think it kind of applies elsewhere as well, with the pretension to govern and control uh, all the channels and modalities that allowed Africans to connect to the border world. So that, that kind of cosmopolitan um, um, uh, global framing of um, you know, um, uh, uh, political conversations in the 1960s, I think, are kind of still kind of responding to, to, to that context, so responding to sort of the possibilities that the end of this context created. Um, and maybe an, another contribution of my work um, 
in relation to the literature on decolonization is um, is that it shows uh, how calls to decolonize knowledge and higher education were historically rooted uh, in the context of political decolonization and struggles around world making, which it's a connection that's not always present in the current conversations about about the decolonization of of knowledge and, and higher education. How does your focus on the students contribute or intervene in the literature on Mobutu, particularly regarding his program of authenticity? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, part of the, you know, I, I, uh, earlier I was talking about the, you know, uh, um, general views about the nature of Mobutu's coup in 1965. And I mean, I could say a kind of similar observation about authenticity. It's often perceived as something uh, purely instrumental, uh, Machiavellian, uh, a discourse that Mobutu mobilized to mask the reality of his uh, regime and uh, oppression. And uh, I I, I would not fully disagree with that, but I, I think that, you know, the fact that authenticity uh, responded to and also tried to hijack uh, elements of the student critique of unfinished decolonization, I think that fact sh- should force us to, to take authenticity a bit more seriously uh, than has been the case. Uh, and, and one reason I think why it's important to do so uh, is that it's actually really resonated with many Congolese, uh, and particularly in urban centers. Um, and it was key in forging a national identity in a country that had been fractured uh, in many uh, um, in many different ways directly after uh, independence. Um, so I think that's kind of... Uh, crucial to sort of like uh, develop the roots of authenticity, this kind of intellectual roots, ideological roots, and one of the roots is the student movement. Um, so, uh, and I, you know, so in the same kind of, along the same lines, I think my, my book shows the, the possibility to challenge the uh, monolithic uh, approach to the Mobutu years. Uh, Often there is, you know, this kind of projection of Mobutu as an omnipotent dictator. And I mean, that's, I mean, in many ways also how he was perceived. So he was kind of able to kind of uh, uh, put this image out there. But, you know, it's kind of omnipotent uh, dictator who controlled, decided of everything. And by focusing on the students, and in the book I focus on the students as the opposition as opponents to Mobutu, but also I talk about some students who actually also work with him. Uh, but the you know one of the stakes of uh, uh, centering these students is to provide uh, you know a kind of different, more expensive understanding of the dynamics of state power uh, and nation building in, in you know in the in the Mobutu years. You interviewed, as you've mentioned, many former student activists, uh, some of whose singular stories you share in literary detail in the interludes that bridge the four sections of your book. Would you like to share maybe one of these people's biography and kind of why you felt it was important to include these interludes? Yeah, I mean, I had a really great time writing these interludes and uh, <laughs> you thinking, <can> tell. About, <laughs> thinking about uh, 
uh, this, uh, you know, biographical trajectories. And, um, but there is, so, uh, uh, there is one that I've been kind of coming back a lot recently, uh, which is the one I wrote about uh, um, a man uh, called uh, Kalix Mukandi Wansanga, who actually uh, uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, in the mid 1960s, he, he he was the leader of uh, a Maoist organization, uh, was called the uh, uh, Congolese Revolutionary Youth Union, uh, and he created and led that organization from Germany. He was studied, uh, studying in Cologne. He was studying geology, uh, and uh, and that group was really instrumental, really important in the mobilizing students for the. Mulele and Zimbabwe risings of the mid 1960s. And uh, when Sangha visited the front several times, he traveled to China, he traveled to Albania, he was connected to uh, Congolese uh, rebels in uh, exile, Uh, he connected them to uh, supporters in East Germany, uh, uh, Cuba, Egypt, elsewhere. And uh, he edited uh, clandestine, clandestinely edited a journal, uh, L'Eclair, which was. Uh, central in creating uh, this movement of support for the rebellion among the student diaspora in Europe and across Africa and uh, and, and and beyond, actually. And uh, you know, when I, I yeah, and this was a really important um, uh, um, uh, this re- really important encounter for me with Wansanga because he had been so central. Uh, in you know student politics in the nineteen sixties, but his role was not very well known because he operated with a pseudonym. Uh, so actually, the, his real identity was uh, not known. He was in Germany, and so uh, um, I kind of got to you know uh, you know identify his real name and then you know locate him quite late in the research process. And I was very happy to meet with him, and he was also very wonderful, very interesting uh, uh, person. And um, uh, we had a great time. But you know, there is something in uh, when I, I went to see him in in Nouakchott in Mauritania, where he, 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 he left he lived for the you know thirty for thirty years uh, at the end of his life, and um, but there was one thing that he told me and that I write about in this vignette that I I, I think is really important, uh, significant. Uh, he was you know talking about. Um, uh, his time at Lovanium. So he studied at Lovanium for two years, 1950, from 1958 to 1960, uh, before going to Germany. Uh, and he was actually originally from Katanga, from a mining town in Katanga. His, his father was a worker there. Uh, and so when he arrived at Lovanium, he didn't know Leopoldville so well, Kinshasa. So uh, Lovanium was a little bit outside of uh, Kinshasa. Now the city has catched up. Uh, with the with the campus, but at the time it was twenty kilometers away from the city, and he really didn't like Lovanium. Like he had, he was kind of this uh, already kind of rebellious figure, and uh, he he thought Lovanium was this kind of boring, you know, Catholic institution, and he spent all of his time in in Kinshasa, in bars, drinking beers on dance floors, and um, and he, you know, when he kind of like remembered that time, he. Uh, yeah, this phrase, you know, we were at the school of the world, because that's that's really there that he became politicized. And it was, you know, he was rebellious, but it was really not politicized when he arrived in uh uh you know at Lovanium in 1958. Uh and that's kind of the encounters, the you know, the people he met in uh you know at night uh in Leopoldville that brought him towards the, the political struggle and the, that kind of uh of path um uh that um uh, you know that led to 
Maoism and kind of revolutionary activism. And uh, so that, that phrase, we were at the, the school of the world, was kind of the inspiration for the title of the book, um, The Students of the World. And, um, and that's, that's kind of, you know, what, what I tried to, to do, you know, in, 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 in this book, you know, it's kind of uh, it's to, to follow uh, people like, uh, 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 you know, uh, Mukani Wansanga, uh, we're really trying to take every opportunity they, they could to broaden up their, their horizons and were never captive of um, the context of the institutions uh, where they studied. All right. One last question. Um, either what new projects are in store for you or what types of projects do you hope your book might inspire? Well, I'd be really happy if my my book inspired any uh, other projects. But I you know it would be great if uh, you know if the the methodic methodological options that we talked about at the beginning you know kind of resonated with uh, other fellow historians of uh, of postcolonial Congo and postcolonial Africa, um, and um, and kind of my own work now ongoing work and future work uh, is sort of like uh, in you know in some ways following up on what I uh, I did in the book uh, I'm working on various things maybe too many at the same time uh, but you know one of the common uh, ground is that um, I'm interested in revisiting the intellectual history of the period that followed the book so uh, uh, in the 1970s from the 1970s to the early 2000s. Uh, I'm still interested in print culture, but other forms of print cultures at the time. I'm interested in public intellectuals. Some of these public intellectuals were people who had been in the student movement before, uh, but public intellectuals in the 1970s and 1980s. I'm also interested in the debates about uh, the decolonization of the church, uh, um, and maybe also some of the parallels between the decolonization of universities and the decolonization of the, of the Catholic Church. I'm interested also still uh, in questions of mobility, but mobility takes different forms in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, and I'm 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 also maybe more than in the first book looking at popular culture during these decades. Um, so the the, the uh, you know in the in, in 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 my book there were this sort of like uh, critical events you know at the end of the 60s that were sort of the trigger of the project and kind of this important pivot. And uh, here with the new project, I think the this is also kind of looking at several decades, but uh, with key events uh, uh, at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, when there was this kind of second wave of uh, the struggle against the Mobutu regime, you know, with the first one having been uh, the student movement of the 1960s, the second one was this kind of more uh, broad uh, popular movement against the 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 dictatorship and I'm so I'm kind of interested to look at dynamics that mirror the 1960s but also that were actually quite uh, uh, significantly different at uh, other levels. Well, all of that sounds interesting, and I I look forward to sort of seeing how it takes shape. Um, all right, Pedro, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thank you, Sarah.